This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. Um, so we um, started talking about uh, Frankfurt and how Frankfurt was such a proud Kehila. Frankfurt had had the... Um, the Yeshua and Afla. And this was at the end of the 1700s. The Afla was Nifter. And the Afla was Nifter. His son took over, followed by a Rav called Ripsam Salmatrier. Now, there were other things happening. Um, in the 1700s, despite the fact that the Kehillah looked like such a beautiful and a successful Kehillah, very strong Rabbanis and so on, people were beginning to become upset. People were beginning to, um, to be, to, they, they felt that the rich and the powerful were running the Kehillah. There was a disconnect, even though it couldn't express itself. But things were happening. Uh, the Enlightenment was beginning to come. And Mendelssohn's works, things were happening under the surface. In 1792, Napoleon captured um, Frankfurt, and he immediately, basically, um, in, I don't know if the word is imposed, or uh, he, he um, put, put in the French ethos of equality, liberty, etc., and that the Jews would have equal rights. So Napoleon conquered back, back and forth. By 1796, the ghetto was destroyed, and meaning not the ghetto, but the walls were destroyed physically. The um, Napoleon himself in 1813 was defeated, but by that time already, politically speaking, things had fallen apart. It no longer was the Holy Roman Empire, and it became a country uh, similar to today, sort of a, a republic of sorts, and Jews had basically um, equal rights. The Aflo was nifted at the end of the 1700s. His son took over for a few years, and then there was a rubber from Zalmetrier. In that coup of about 25 years, there was a rub. By 1838, the liberals had won liberal means similar to reform, I guess that would be that they, they won the majority on the council. In 1846, Reb Troya resigned, and in 1848, a reform rabbi was elected, a liberal rabbi was elected as head of the city. And basically, it seemed at that point that the city was gone, and in terms of Yiddishkeit, and it was over. In 1849, a small group of 11 families got together and they formed a religious association. I want to explain the point here because this is going to be important later on also. In Germany, like we heard from the rabbi in Hamburg, the, um, the, the churches and religious institutions and religious communities were governed by the government, which means when they recognized the community as being 
the Muslim community, let's say. So they had the full rights to all the parts of that community's doings, and other people could not do that. So, Beisakvaris, Shita, everything and anything that belonged to the community and was communal, taxes, um, and so on, was in the hands of that council. And the Jews, whoever was, whatever you, however you felt about it, were beholden to it. You couldn't bury your dead in the basic forest and things like that. The um, the eleven families could not form a new uh, religious, um, a, a, a full religious. Um, I don't know what to call it, uh, denomination or something like that. It was a society for a religious society, like a club of some sort. That was the best they could do. And they reached out to a Rav in Moravia, which is like a part of Czechoslovakia, named Shamshafal Hirsch, to become the Rav of that community. Um, it, it's impossible to think that anything could turn back the wheel's history and um, change the community. It, it collapsed. And this was a pitiful group of 11 families, hundreds of thousands of, of, of other families who had a Mishagas and they wanted to keep the Orthodox practices and brought in Shavshal Falhirsch. Shavshal Falhirsch left a fairly prestigious um, Rabbanis in uh, Moravia, Nicholsburg. There were sometimes the reasons given are that he was an idealistic. There was other reasons also. It's ironic. In Moravia, they did not particularly, they weren't particularly happy with him. They felt that he's reformed. It's ironic, but they felt he has Newman Hagen, um, such as changing when the Rav says it, Russia on Kolnidri um, night, before Kolnidri, after Kolnidri, such important issues. And they sort of did not care for him all that much. So it's not clear why he left, but he left and he became Rav of Frankfurt. For information about Rosh Fall Hirsch, the best um, the best book is called Shemesh Marpe. I, it was translated into English. I don't. I think it's called the story of Rosh Hirsch, the biography. It was written by a very by a close friend of mine, Rabbi Meir Klugman. Um, full disclosure: he has a close friend of mine, and I have no I get no percentage of the book. But what he did was, first of all, he he's a great great grandson of Rosh Hashanah Hirsch himself. He uh, lived with it, he grew up with it. The bona fide Klugman family is a bona fide Yekisha family. He, um, he also collected an incredible amount of um, documents. He got them from the Broyers, and he really worked hard on making sure that it's an honest and true biography. It's one of the blessings or curses of somebody who was so widely accepted like Absham Shafal Hirsch, that everybody wants to make him over Ketzalma Ketimusai. Um, and he was very, very honest, and his Sefer is a marvelous Sefer. It's actually, in Hebrew, it has two parts to it. The first part, he has Chuvas and Shtiklach Torah of Absham Shafal Hirsch, which um, the, the, the one who worked on it, 
was I'm trying to remember it was, it was Shmuel Deutsch I believe worked on it and he told him that the shtiklach have a tam of Rebchaim that was what he described it so whatever it is they're very very nice shtiklach all range in all sorts that's half of it that's part of it and the other part was a biography where he discusses all the different aspects of Hashem Shemfal Hirsch's life and um, very very thorough very honest everything backed up with documentation he um Hirsch in 1851 took on the Rabbanis until he was nipped in 1880 he led the community and he created a revolution that was incredible from 11 families they rapidly grew to a few hundred families now this is something also which is a phenomenon that we have a hard time understanding people in that kufa, in those days, in that place, their commitment to, should I be observant reform or observant orthodox or whatever it is, was really not based on shtekel Torah. They didn't learn through the Rambam and, and try to figure out Ikremuna, They really were impressed with a Rav. And if the Rav is orthodox, so be it. And if he's liberal, so be it. And the force of his personality um, and everything that he said and did turned the community into a, a huge, vibrant community. Now, what was it about him that was so incredibly effective? So obviously he was a person who was Ishal that came in many ways, but I'll try, I think, to, to, to tap into it. He had, first of all, there was a fire burning inside him. He was somebody that was Eishlach Kaidish. And this is something that I think needs to be stressed. A lot of times a person who makes changes or is willing, is amenable to changes, tends to be somebody who is lukewarm, okay with things, not very passionate. You rarely find somebody passionate who is a um, who is so, who, who also can make decisions and decide this or this or the other thing. It's very, very rare. And he was somebody who was so passionate and yet the changes that needed to be made, he made. He made changes and each change that he made, it's not a bit of it. He decided either it has to be done or you're not allowed to do it. And he could be as firm in doing the things that have to be done as not doing the things that shouldn't be done. So for instance, the, um, the improvement of the aesthetics of the shul, the martial cleanliness, seder, no spitting, which in those days was kind of a, a, a mark of a, let's call it a, a very Hamish matzev, um, cleanliness organization, choir, music, the Rav wearing a, a uniform, all of these things he felt were important and with a, <coughs> was vehement about implementing it. Speaking in proper German, he was a change in Hungary, changing the Russian <coughs> to, to Hungarian or German was considered to be trafe. He was a big advocate and he, he spoke. He spoke beautiful, eloquent German. There was a Yid Greenwald, Yuda Greenwald. He, 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 he became a Rav in America 
in Columbus, Ohio, and he wrote a Colbert La Velas, which was very popular. He wrote a lot of a lot of uh, historical monographs. He's, he, he would collect a lot of different things, and he himself was Hungarian and had spent some time learning about Shamsha Fall Hirsch. And he writes, he was disappointed in the lack of Pilpul. Shamsha Fall Hirsch was a Pashtun in Yasha in terms of the, both the uh, halach and other things. But he said when he got up to speak, you felt as if a Navi was speaking. This is from somebody coming from a very different world. And he said when he got up to speak, it was a Ruach Kim Nibibai. And people felt it. He spoke in German, that was one, an eloquent German, that was very, very important. Secondly, he was able to give Torah meaning in the words and in the mindset of a contemporary German. In other words, to reach an Asay Torah, where it is halachically accurate, totally, totally, um, not, not one Kutzer off and yet explain it in language and ideals and values that spoke to people at the time it was an incredible feat. If you look through it, if you... Svi uh, Rubenfeld is a big chassid of Rosh Hashanah and knows a lot of his, uh, a lot of his things. That's a, um, I, di- I didn't get any of this from him, but uh, he, if he speaks about Torah uplifting humanity, uplifting society, about the beauty of the world, and Kali Yisrael being an extraordinarily special nation within the tapestry of the tapestry of, of the of the world. That was that was that was his message. That was the way he brought it, and it was incredible. It was something that spoke to them and infused them with a tremendous amount of um, inspiration and brought them to the shul, and they would do as he said. So you had hundreds of families who basically were Amaratsim in many ways, but were very turned on and very, very faithful to what he said. He created a school system, which was also, I don't know if it was a novelty novelty, but it was rare, and it was a school system that put out Talmidim with a full uh, German education, and yet, a lot of Yerushalayim and so on. To be honest, the amount of learning they did in terms of Gemara and things like that wasn't a lot by our standards today. People did not come out mass in Tamil but they came out knowing the halachis, the dinim, and with a tremendous amount of Yerushalayim. The Sefer itself, if you look at it, sort of reviews a lot of the halachis at every parsha, he <coughs> will sort of review the halachis and speak about it. Um, his svarim uh, that he wrote were also received extraordinarily warmly. His first sefer, having written many years before he became rob there, was Igris Tzofin or the 19 Letters, which was um, a sort of a dialogue with a friend of his who a so-called friend of his had gone off the derech, and he was explaining to him Yiddishkeit and all the things about Yiddishkeit and so on. That was uh, a dialogue of his, and it, people were very taken by it. Again, he, able, he was able to explain it in a way that spoke to people. 
and I want to use an expression when people ask, how shall I argue a certain point in Yiddishkeit? Or what arguments are used, what proofs, what logic? There's Lush in Rashi that it says, Rashi says there were many Paisrim, but it wasn't Misiyashiv al You can say many things, you can try to prove many things, but certain things click, certain things don't. He had whatever it took, that it clicked. And we compared him when we spoke about Rabbi Israel Huldesheimer and Rabbi Hoffman. They were scholars and they fulfilled a very important function. But the ability to speak to a Kehila in a way that, that is a Ruach Lekim, that was unique to him. I, I want to speak a little bit about Torah Berheretz. Um, like we said before, everybody would like to color him. It's Almeida Kippusenu. He was, and this, um, I am, uh, this is Rebbe Lemeya Klugman's personal, even, you know, he, Rebbe Lemeya Klugman grew up in Litvish Yeshivas, tells the mirror. It wasn't a Bidyevit. He believed and saw the tafkid of Torah expressing itself in all facets of life and all the Chachmas Ha'olam being avenues to express it in. But it was very different than other people. I want to I say something. I want to I give an example of, of it. Um, Gretz, Heinrich Gretz, who became one of the prototype, I guess not founders as much as sort of beginnings of the conservative movement. Heinrich Gretz was a, was a, was a historian and the, the noted historian. He, he studied with, privately, with Rav Shamsha Paul Hirsch. He was a brilliant student. Shamsha had him as a Talmud. And he writes in his diaries, Gretz, about the Seder Alimud. They would learn this, they would learn uh, Mishnah, they would learn Paiskim, they would learn Greek, they would learn that, that. But he brings them an anecdote, he brings a story that happened with him. There was a certain philosopher they were studying, and he said something that Shamshar said, it's Kfira, it's Chira Vigidov, the book must be burned immediately. And Grant said, no, it belonged to the library. And he said, I, it was, I could barely get away from him and bring it to the library. But the point was, he didn't accept the world's knowledge the way the world understood it. In other <coughs> words, if Harvard University says this is a good curriculum, this must be a good curriculum. He examined everything himself, and he said to himself, is this right, is this wrong, does this add, does this beautify, or, 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 or does this take away? There wasn't any it. in other words, whatever was right, was right, and whatever was wrong, was wrong. And it takes a person like him to judge like that. So he certainly was, was a, um, he certainly was someone who believed that the Torah should, should be taught, the Torah should express itself in the world of their heritage, meaning, like many of his Pshatim Chomish, he expresses how Torah can make the world into the beautiful place it's supposed to be. So to, you need to understand the world, you need to understand Torah and make it like that. He believed there is what to learn by Umas Olam and to take out points that are good and to throw out a lot that's not. 
it's it's it, it's hard. It'd be hard put to find people. There are people who reject totally Chachmas Olam, and the people who swallow it totally with a little bit of a, you know a hechsher here or there. But per, a person that should honestly sit and take and say these ideas are worthwhile ideas. These ideas are horrendous. These ideas come from a good place, but they've been distorted, etc. He was he's a yachid. And he expressed it. This is this is what he expresses through all of his writings. He he is he uses the understanding of the world as is understood by anyone who's osik in their hearts, and if, and in a very fiery way, um, explains it the way Torah explains it. He so he made a, a school. He did not make a yeshiva. His son-in-law, after he was nifted, made a yeshiva, and he had met resistance with it. Um, unclear to me, it wasn't clear exactly what the point that was. Rasham Shafal Hirsch wrote another sefer called Chorev, which is an explanation of all the mitzvahs maizias in a way that includes the halachas and explains them in a way that a contemporary person can get time in it, like we spoke before. And Klugman, it's a problem mine, he told me he saw the notes and what's fascinating is that he had, in every mitzvah, he first wrote out all the chazal on the mitzvah and all the zohars on the mitzvah. He himself learned zohar. He did not speak it publicly, which is the right, which is the right thing, actually. And he, he incorporated it all. In other words, when he was giving a, an explanation for mitzvahs, even though he doesn't quote any chazal when he's explaining it, and he's speaking as if he's just with a chomish in his hand. He was coming by digesting what Chazal taught us and giving it over in a language that was um, that was uh, contemporary and spoke to people. His biggest cause, his the thing he pushed the most, he unfortunately was not successful at, and that was the Austrit, which means he secured the right for community to form its own community. But it would mean leaving the large community. And people resisted it. The way I understand from what I read is the main resistance was because they would not be able to be buried together with, um, with people, with their families meant totally severing yourself. He also met resistance from very Hashva Rav, Rabbi was a very Hashva Rav who felt that you're creating a fiction for no reason. Everything you have, you could get by working with them. By this time, the liberal community had recognized they have to acknowledge the, and they were willing to compromise and to work together. But Weinberger said that that would save a lot of hassle, and there's no reason for it. And Hirsch was adamantly insisted on it, which is fascinating because the people today who would like to use Schamschafall Hirsch as as their role model are also very against yeah. separate. He had the Turkata vision on communal separation and the need for communal independence together with um, a, a, a very different perspective. He was his own das. To put him in a box and claim him as your own is, is doing a tremendous uh, 
I've looked to, to memories accomplishments. Like upon him, we have only a few minutes left. Uh, trains in Germany are notoriously known to be on time, so we, we will be getting at some point uh, close to the, to the station. So, summing up, um, we, we, we've just spoken about an incredible hundred years of Tkufa. It went from disintegrating at the way at the end of the 70s to openly falling apart at the 1800s. So, by 1850, there was almost nothing left to a rejuvenation, rebirth by 1880 that is a prototype for our survival. It's an incredible story. If you think, if you sit back and think a minute about it, stage, stage one, a Kahila that looks for errors, the way that Flo writes about it, incredible. And a few years later, it's gone to a point where it's here in Dallas. And a few years later, it, it's, it's back in a new form, recast, with a tremendous vibrancy. And it stayed, the Kahila stayed until Kristallnacht. When the when the Germans went, everything everything was destroyed. It's, it's, there's a lot to think about, a lot to be explaining about, and um, we'll be seeing some of those places in Frankfurt that are meaningful in this. And then at the, we're going to speak about a whole hidden about about something that's beneath the surface of, of this of this incredible story. Okay.